Welcome to our third episode of the Goodwill Hunters Autumn Series, the NGO of the future. Donations might only provide around 8% of NGO income, but since it's the most flexible form of funding, it's critical to the sector's future. However, even before COVID, most NGOs were experiencing declining returns from their fundraising expenditure. COVID-19 has made this situation even more complicated. Many community fundraising events have been cancelled and face-to-face fundraising is on hold. In contrast, digital forms of fundraising have been growing, but most NGOs have struggled to successfully exploit this channel at scale. In this episode, co-host Rachel Mason-Nunn and I speak with Leonie Valentine and Sarah Davies on how NGOs are adapting to these emerging fundraising challenges. Leonie has worked for Google since 2014. She is currently Managing Director of Google in Melbourne and for Government. Leonie has over 20 years of experience in sales, marketing and operations. Sarah Davies is CEO of the Alana and Madeline Foundation. Prior to this role, she was the CEO of Philanthropy Australia, the national peak body for philanthropy in Australia. As always, we hope you enjoy the episode. The world needs a vibrant civil society. International NGOs have been vocal advocates and trusted implementers for decades, but their very existence is under threat. In a rapidly changing world, how do we ensure their continuing impact and sustainability? My name is Rachel Mason Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from Alinea Whitelam. As a certified B Corporation, Alinea Whitelam is at home in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sectors, giving us a unique appreciation for the diversity of stakeholders that contribute to quality development. We're so glad you can join us for this important conversation on the future of the NGO this autumn. Sarah, Leonie, great to have you both on the podcast. Sarah, can I start with you? With fundraising returns falling across the whole of the NGO sector, have traditional forms of fundraising reached their use-by date? So when you talk about traditional forms of fundraising, let's think about um, core motivations and core principles of fundraising. So if our core principles are that donors are looking for learning and experience, donors are looking for both some immediate gratification, like a, you know, a goodwill response from what they're doing, but also a a longer-term connection with the cause or the organisation. Donors are looking for personalisation. They want it to be an intimate experience. Um, They're looking to bring their purpose to life and they're looking for community. And no, those principles and those basic sort of human needs of a donor are not changing in any way, shape or form, I don't think. I think what is changing and what will always change are the vehicles and the engines and the methodologies that those principles come to life. So, for example, you know, 10 years ago, gala balls were a major fundraising initiative um, and the return on the investment could be as much as kind of three to one, sometimes four to one. But what the donors wanted out of that was connection, community, immediate gratification, learning and experience, Now, the ball itself may not be a very effective fundraising tool. I think, you know, last time I looked at this, the returns were down to like 1 to 1.5. And so 
people are getting those outcomes in different ways. So we're seeing virtual events. We're seeing, you know, in the US, some really interesting examples. I'd love to hear from Leonie about this in terms of um, virtual reality experiences, um, you know, live streaming of content, different ways to give the donor the same engagement. So are the tools evolving? Absolutely. Are the core principles and things that a donor is looking for changing? I don't think so. That's a terrific overview, Sarah. Most fundraisers in the NGO sector would still say that in total, we're spending a lot more on fundraising than we used to, and we're raising a lot less than we used to. So overall, the return on investment across all the current forms of fundraising is declining. And that's really putting the sustainability of the whole sector at risk. What's driving this declining fundraising return? So I think what could be driving the ratio is significantly increased consumer and donor awareness of demand and options, significantly increased and sophisticated segmentation of the asks and the opportunities to donate, so, you know, in a crude sense, people talk about competition, but I think it's, I think it's much more complex than just saying competition. Um, and, but I also, in that question, Paul, is an implicit judgment that that's a bad thing. So I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm not 100% sure it's a bad thing either because it takes what it takes. And if we have something like, you know, 50% of Australian charities uh, you know, relying on fundraising to a significant degree to keep the doors open and keep their programs running, then, you know, it, it does take what it takes. And I think the other thing that we're starting to, that, what, no, that is increasingly important is that not every dollar actually is e- of equal value when it comes through the door to the organisation. So the cost of generating that dollar, you also have to think about the cost of generating that value. So as someone that has worked for a long time in charities, the Nirvana for me is regular, predictable, untied income. So I am happy to spend more to generate regular, predictable, untied income because that is the most powerful dollar to allow us to decide how to create the change we're chasing versus dollars that have lesser value and therefore maybe I want to spend less to generate them. Sarah, it's really evident from what you're saying that there are a lot of challenges for Australian NGOs to be thinking about right now in regards to fundraising and donors. It's no doubt a complex issue to navigate. Leonie, I know you've just returned to Australia from Hong Kong where you were on the board of Save the Children, and I'm interested to hear your response to Sarah's comments, but also to know, are these challenges that Asian NGOs are facing as well, or is any of this unique to the Australian context? Uh, Rachel, it's a great question, and um, thank you for for asking it. Look, the challenges are fairly similar, to be honest. There's, um, you know, Sarah talked a little bit about the competition. You know, in in the marketing world, we talk about it as a competition for eyeballs. In, In the charity sector, we talk about it in terms of competition, I think, for, for headspace in some respects. We actually want to make sure that the messages that we're sending as an NGO or a charity are, are meaningful and that they're reaching the right people who are interested to either volunteer their time or to actually donate money. 
what was interesting in Hong Kong, um, and I think it was Asian Charity Services did a survey some years ago where they looked at the sector in Hong Kong. Hong Kong people were more likely to donate money than time. It's one of the big differences there, given the experience that I had as a volunteer growing up with my mum being heavily involved in every kind of charity under the sun in country Victoria, was that we were very heavily geared around donating time here and, you know, time in the community, writing for disabled, you know, Red Cross bake sales, all those sorts of things. Hong Kong, very time poor. It's a very hard working community, but they also have at their heart community values in terms of wanting to give something back. So can be quite generous um, with money. One of the big challenges, I think, though, for a lot of organisations um, ends up being, I think, the clarity around the purpose and vision for the organisation and just ensuring that that actually reaches um, the right audience or, or people at the right times. You also have the complicating factor, I think, these days of um, the immediacy of information, things like social media, etc. It's great, but it can also create a groundswell of nervousness if you're not getting the right messages out to the right people at the right times. So, you know, so for example, in a political sense, um, somewhere like Hong Kong, when we actually had protests going on in you know, 2019, it was a particularly fraught time for a lot of the charities in Hong Kong, because if they were international, it was perceived per perhaps that they weren't as helpful to Hong Kong at a local level. So that then became really important for the for the Hong Kong organisations to use their digital channels to get stories about out about the local programs that they were actually using the local funding for. So you know there was a lot more I think collaboration between the charities themselves, not just Save the Children, but a lot of the charities that we worked for uh, in the community, and then across the charity sector in terms of some of the international um, NGOs, and then what was actually happening again at a very local. Cantonese, you know, speaking sort of level. So, I mean, so there's some there's some very similar things in terms of I think the breadth and depth of the sector now, but there would be some very subtle sort of local differences based on on things like you know what are the socioeconomic impacts, um, what is the politics of the time, etc., and then what is the what's actually happening right now in terms of competition for headspace and airspace. Thanks, Leonie. Perhaps we can move on to major donors. Sarah, you'll be familiar with the US industrialist Andrew Carnegie's famous quote that said that the man who dies rich dies disgraced. Yet I've had a look at the most recent Australian tax office data on giving of Australians who earn more than a million dollars a year. And I'm flabbergasted to see that about 44% of Australians who are in that category don't appear to give a single cent to charity. Are NGOs doing something wrong here? Or are we just facing a sort of stingy group of donors? Look, I think uh, we can't talk about donors as one cohort. They're hugely diverse and very different. So if you look at the ATO stats of who claims a tax deduction, so, you know, these are people that for, for at whatever income level that have put in a deduction for a charitable gift. Um, it's around 0.46% of um taxable income. So, you know, that's that's kind of not bad globally as a standard. I mean, we'd love to see it at, at 1%. Um, and, you know, we've seen great campaigns from Salesforce and, and um, uh, Atlassian around, you know, the 1% challenge. But actually, you know, the national average of around, you know, 
0.45% is not bad. When you look at those high net wealth individuals, however, you are right. I think it's even, I think it's less than 50% claim a charitable deduction. Now, I, I don't think we can assume that they don't give anything to charity because they may have previously set up a path, for example, chucked in a few million, and that's actually what's driving their charitable giving. So, you know, we've got to be a bit careful making gross assumptions from this. But I do believe that our high, the, the proportion of our high net wealth population um, that gives is less than a global standard. And that is absolutely something I think that we should be changing in Australia. And I think that there are a number of ideas and initiatives and ways to do that. We have a very low rate of bequesting charitably. Um, we have a very low rate of adults having a will for a start, let alone leaving a proportion of their estate in the will to a charitable bequest. And even when they do, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of their estate. So I, I do think that there are some cultural uh, challenges around high net wealth giving and around bequesting where we have a huge opportunity to try and change that. Leonie, is the culture of donating to charity amongst the wealthy in Asia different? And I'm really interested to hear from both of you examples of good practice in the NGO sector with respect to major donors. I do know that a lot of the, the wealthier families in Hong Kong, I think to Sarah's point, actually had their own foundations. Um, and quite often, most of the, the sort of charities in Asia tend to get a patron. So you'll, you know, the, the expression in Hong Kong is like a rich Tai Tai, which is basically the, the spouse um, of a wealthy family member who really wants to give their time to a local charity, lend their network, and also with that comes a significant donation. You know, we're talking in the sort of US millions of dollars. So having that that patron, and I know patronage happens here as well, um, it's actually a, a very visible sign of giving back. So there, there's quite a lot of competition to get the right people as patrons for your particular charity, somebody that's very aligned to your values that can represent and then also attract other similar donors, you know, within similar circles. So that's actually worked very well, I think, in Asia. You know, going back to um, Sarah's earlier point about galas, galas are still quite popular for certain charities because, again, um, it's it's also about that sort of collective giving. There's something about actually sitting in one of those auctions that creates a little bit of competition and they like to, to sort of show each other up in terms of generosity and it's actually really applauded. So it, it's quite interesting to see, you know, I was at Save the Children Hong Kong's gala a couple of years ago and Donnie Yen was actually there. So who's a, you know, a Cantonese um, and international movie star. And so having those sorts of people actually backing up the charity, putting their money, actually donating things like their costumes and sunglasses, et cetera, to be auctioned off, actually just created a little bit more vibe. And then we also had the online tools as well so that the people that couldn't be part of that particular event could still take part in, in some of the auctions too. So it creates that kind of, I think there's a little bit of element of celebrity that comes in as well into charity in Asia. Um, I think, Leonie, that, that point you made is really important about collective giving. And it is absolutely true to say that in Australia, collective giving is probably one of the strongest, most healthiest developments that we have seen emerge over the last 10, 15 years. 
It's just that the way that's happening is is different. So um, certainly uh, in a planned and structured way, we've seen extraordinary growth and fantastic work out of giving circles. You know, we've got the Impact 100 network around the country. Uh, the, the, um, the taking off really long overdue taking off, I might add, of the whole community foundation structure with donor advised funds and donor circles and giving. We've seen informal swarming around donor circles. And, but we've also seen, if you like, a replacement of some of the, the more traditional forms of collective giving like the Gala Ball with things like the funding network. So less emphasis on, um, I think, what people might, might put in a perception of, of kind of the frills that you don't really need and more emphasis, I think, in a very healthy way on the purpose, the cause, the connection, the understanding, the impact that's created, the tribe that's created with the collective giving. So I think that is a very healthy um, feature of Australian giving at the moment. I agree, Sarah, as well. And I think, you know, your point before about the diversification of fundraising, it, it's not like we can rely, you know, 1970s, a single cake stall to actually make enough donations for the local Lions Club or however that actually worked back in the day. Now we actually have to think about the constant engagement of those donors that you spoke about, the ones that are really engaged, they're regularly giving, you know, but it's not a set and forget. It's actually some way that we're communicating with them. They understand where their money is going and they're quite comfortable to keep those monthly donations coming in. And there's a big element, I think, of both email marketing and then digital that comes into play to ensure that we've got a really loyal group um, of donors who are constantly engaged. And then they also can become kind of word of mouth, right? Again, this sort of collectivism of, of getting those people engaged to actually get out to their own networks and sort of showcase what they're doing through social networks, you know, whether that's LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, etc. Um, that's I think that's a great way because I think one of the big things that's actually changed over time now with the democratization of media and the ease with which you can have your own user-generated content is it's really put the power back in the hands of individuals in terms of how they want to communicate what they're doing, right? So they've almost become like a little broadcast corporation themselves. I, you know, I regularly put things on LinkedIn about where I'm actually volunteering my time or, you know, particular charities that I want to support. And I think it's great if we can actually get the donors within our own organisations and, and the charities, NGOs, not-for-profits that we support to be a little bit more savvy around how they help us to get those messages out, right? Yeah, and, and that I think, um, you know, make, reminds me and coming back to your point, Paul, about major donors and major gifts, there, I think there really has been a cultural shift in Australia in the last sort of 15, 20 years about people starting to embrace the joy of giving and share that experience much more publicly. And we have seen over the last five to 10 years in Australia, we have actually seen a growth in major gifts. And we have certainly seen a change in attitude about celebrating and acknowledging that through stories and telling. I mean, I remember when I started in philanthropy many, many, many moons ago, donors saying to me, I don't tell anybody about what I'm doing. I might have my own foundation, but I don't talk to my siblings. I don't talk to my friends about it. I'm a bit embarrassed by it. And there is still an element of that in our culture. 
culture, but I do think we have seen a significant breakthrough in people understanding the importance of celebrating the joy of giving because that then creates, um, you know, a framework that other people can look at and go, oh, I can do that and I can do that. And we have seen an increase in major gifts publicly announced and publicly celebrated, I think, which we've got to keep going. I want to move on to digital fundraising and some of the emerging forms of fundraising in just a moment. But before I do, Sarah, you mentioned wills and bequests. Philanthropy Australia, your former employer, released a report that suggested about $2.4 trillion worth of intergenerational wealth is going to be transferred in the coming years. And then, as you've said, we've got some really low numbers of Australians with a will and even lower levels of people with a bequest to a charity in their wills. There's a huge opportunity here for charities, but how do NGOs take advantage of that opportunity? Uh, absolutely. And it's not going to happen. It's happening. We are kind of four years into that transfer now. So this is existing wealth, existing money, no value add created, moving from one set of pockets in baby boomer generation to their children and or grandchildren. So it's not new wealth, new creation. This is $2.4 trillion moving from one set of pockets to another. And, and nationally as a culture, if we can't uh, encourage people to see the importance of sharing that with community beyond direct family and beneficiaries, then, then, then you know, there's something perhaps a little bit sad about our souls. Um, and it's interesting because this then comes into, you know, you do get then caught into the, 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 the question of wealth creation, wealth distribution and tax and should we have an inheritance tax and, you know, those kinds of questions. But let's leave it just for fundraising. We don't have, I don't think we have yet the right kind of vehicles and incentives that make it easy for people to do that. So if you think about the invention of the PATH or the prescribed private fund, as it was, that you know, John Howard and, and David Gonski led that. Look at how that transformed high net wealth giving and family and individual giving. It really did. Well, I think we have an opportunity to create the next engine that actually transforms bequest giving. And there are structures around the world that help do this, living legacy trust structures. There's lots of information on the Philanthropy Australia website about the ideas and initiatives that we're putting forward to government for consideration. So we've just got to nudge people and encourage people to think about it. Bequest programs, I mean, you know, a lot of charities have really good bequest programs. They're challenging in a way because there's such a long tail to them. It's very hard. You know, we've we're brought up now on weekly, monthly, quarterly KPIs and indicators and lead indicators and lag indicators and what's the return on investment. And every year when you're putting your budgets in, you know, it's a competition for funds about where you put them. Bequests don't give you weekly, monthly, quarterly returns. <laughs> like it's a, you've got to sow the seeds, you've got to till the soil, you've got to steward your donors and your relationships, you've got to keep your friends, friendships, you've got to, you know, evidence your impact um, in order to, to create the returns that come through bequests. Sarah, I might jump in there. It's really hard to fathom the gravity of $2.4 trillion. And so I think then it's timely for us to talk about how do you 
fundraise really effectively through a range of channels. Leonie, you mentioned cake stalls before, and as the queen of childhood cake stalls, I was excited to hear it. But I know that that old school kind of fundraising has really gone out the window and what we're looking at increasingly is digital fundraising channels. However, it seems like Australian NGOs have really struggled to fully capitalise on digital fundraising and take it to scale. Um, Feel free to disagree with me. Maybe they're doing a better job than I think they are. But what do you think are the challenges with with really um, entering the digital fundraising space? Yeah, look, um, the number one challenge I think, Rachel, is actually finding the right people to help you. Um, one of the, the the challenges when I speak to a lot of the NGOs because you know Google has our ad grants program. So for any um, any NGO that actually qualifies, I think you basically just have to have the right registration. You can get US ten thousand dollars a month of free Google text ads on the Google search platform. Now, when I go and speak to these charities about actually accessing that, the challenge that they have is that they don't have people within their own organisation or within their volunteer organisation that can help them to activate those dollars. And there are a number of organisations and other media organisations that will provide these kinds of funds for charity to do, you know, basically free advertising. But you need the skill set within the organisation to be able to make the most of those grants. It also requires you, I think, to have a certain level of savviness, either within the organisation um, or perhaps as a pro bono partner with an agency or another um, organisation to look at your customer relationship management, your CRM. So what does your donor's database actually look like and how are you leveraging that to make sure that, you know, for the regular donors, that you're keeping them engaged enough so that they don't get to a point, you know, at some time during the year where they can't, they don't want to donate anymore. They've decided to go and switch to a, another charity or just stop donating altogether. How do you keep that engagement cycle going? So there's quite a lot of work to be done, I think, in terms of it comes back to some of the things that were said earlier about what's the vision mission, right? What are the goals of the organisation? Yes, we have to talk about OKRs or KPIs, but then we also have to make sure that the organisation actually has the capabilities to be able to leverage digital channels and the technology platforms that are needed to support that. So really basic stuff actually needs to be in place. A really good website that is search engine optimised. These days, a mobile website, which is actually fundamentally different from your primary website because it must operate on mobile. That's where most people are going to go. Can you donate money? You know, when you're capturing somebody in that moment when they're sitting on the bus, the tram or the train and they're having a generous moment, they look at your mobile website. Can they just hit a button and actually do some, some form of donation? Now, if you, if you look at some of the pages of some of the media organisations, like a Guardian will actually have a very prominent Donate Now button to support quality journalism. Now, there are some of these things we should look to other industries as well to see how they're doing this and how it works really well for them and try and adopt some of those techniques. A GoFundMe is among the many online fundraising websites that have emerged in the last decade. And it seems like one that, um, well, it is the biggest one with over um, 50 million people giving via GoFundMe in 2017. Is that a solution? Like, is that enough? Should we just support these online fundraising platforms? Um, Look, you know, I think it's one of the, the many mixes, right? So, you know, when I was working with Save the Children Hong Kong, they were actually implementing their own payment platform. I think it was based on Stripe. So they did a complete redevelopment of their website. They made their donation button 
um, more prominent. They made more prominent their monthly subscriptions and their child sponsorships because what they had worked out through um, looking at that particular channel is that it wasn't optimised so that when people were searching for something to do with their money or time, they weren't actually landing on the right pages to be able to, to we would call it a conversion in digital marketing world, but in the charity world, it's basically about trying to get them to do something like donate, sign up, volunteer time. So we were trying to get those sort of high, I think high interaction, the ones, the results that we really wanted to attract both volunteers and donors very high up on the website, right? So being able to target those places, then being able to have the platform that actually accepted donations was important. There are other ways to do it. For example, in my organisation, we use the Benevity platform. So we have a donor match program and everything needs to be done through Benevity. So it's not like a one size fits all. It would be a bit like saying to a retailer, you can only take funding through one source, right? If we And back to the 1970s, your choice is bank card and that's all you get. You know, Visa, MasterCard, Cash, GPay, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay. Now there are so many different channels. What the organisations actually have to think about is probably more of a payment platform that is able, very low fee, hopefully almost zero fees for charities, to be able to accept all of those different payment types. Because it just means that the organisation, it, it has... I think more touch points into some of these places where fundraising can happen. And again, into some of the individuals that might want to do their own thing, have their own user-generated content, start something at a school level, and then be able to seamlessly donate that, that money from wherever they built their particular page straight through to the charity. One of the fundamental differences in my mind between traditional fundraising channels, such as direct response television, called DRTV, or mass postal-based fundraising, and digital fundraising, is the fragmentation of digital channels. With a channel like DRTV, you can go onto one of the main Australian TV channels and you can access a lot of eyeballs. Similarly, with face-to-face -face fundraising, you can find high-volume locations in big shopping centres and again access a large number of people. In comparison, Digital channels appear fragmented and therefore more difficult to achieve fundraising volume. Is there any way to overcome this fragmentation? Well, see, ironically, Paul, it's quite the opposite. So the, the, the advantage of digital is not volume. The advantage of digital is personalisation. So um, one of the things that actually happens on, on a lot of the digital platforms, um, not only would the charity have their own first-party data in terms of who's already a donor or a volunteer, but by working with other partners, you get access to the signals that they have. So, for example, on, on Google search, if we actually have a logged-in Google user, um, we can understand some of their patterns of behaviour and their intent. And that's the whole idea of something like search, for example. So, you know, if you're interested, um, as you would be in children's charities in Australia, I would hope that I'd go to Google search, right? And I'd say children's charities Australia, and then save the children would be one of the first things that pops up as an option. However, if also through my general searches, right, I'm, I'm looking, come back to Australia, I'm looking for places to spend my time and volunteer, and I just type in something like volunteering activities in Australia, right? What's going to happen over time is my profile is going to be built up to say, hey, this particular person is probably interested in volunteering donation, this geographic location, these sorts of interests. 
And what you can actually do is try and target through paid um, advertising back to those individuals to try and convert them into somebody that actually wants to be part of your charity. So there's different ways. Some of the, the free services don't allow the same kind of really pinpoint targeting, um, but in combination with both in terms of the net return to the organisation, which we would call, you know, ROAS, a return on ad spend, you can actually find those high, I think, high value donors and the ones that will be super engaged. Because it's, it's a question, I think, Paul, of intent. You know, what are they intending to do with their time or money? How do you find that out? Sarah, Leone highlighted a really important point that I want to ask you about. These new digital channels are great opportunities for NGOs, but you must have staff with digital skills and capabilities. You need to have the right IT systems that can be quite sophisticated and expensive. With donors reluctant to fund these types of capabilities and systems, how do NGOs find the necessary investment to exploit these new channels? You know, this is where I think, uh, this is where there is a conundrum um, and it's a kind of a spinning black circle um, because there is no doubt that um, donors live in a world where things are accessible, easy, personal, intelligent and interconnected. And so if we live in that world and we shop in that world and we socialise in that world, we want to give in that world and we want to volunteer in that world. Like that, Leonie nailed it. But in order to develop the capabilities, the infrastructure and the, the human resource capabilities takes investment and learning and we're not there. And we have this ridiculous, flawed, fundamentally problematic attitude that somehow or other an organisation's capacity and capability has no influence whatsoever on the outcomes that it's trying to achieve and that only a small slice of it, which is the meal that gets served in the restaurant, is what will get you the outcomes, the program, not the rest of the infrastructure around it. Now, I would say that I think from a philanthropic perspective, so if we're talking about, you know, trusts and foundations and donors that that work with a very deliberate intentional strategy about the change they want to achieve, I think we are seeing that shift and shift quite quickly in Australia. I think that we are seeing leadership now from philanthropics that is explicitly acknowledging and explicitly funding capability and capacity building. And so I hope that that will influence the mass donor market as we do that. But I also think charities um, are their own worst enemy. Because every time we put out an ask or an appeal or a fundraising request that says 100% of your gift will go straight to the cause, we are just putting another nail in that door that makes sure it will never open. And that, Sarah, was a significant issue in relation to the appeals for the 2020 Australian bushfires. Charities faced significant pressure to apply 100% of the money raised to direct costs and to somehow fund administration expenses in another way. This pressure undermines the whole sector, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And so I think with, with you know, moving, creating a, um, a vibrant and engaged donor community through mobile, web and social technologies, the step up in investment, I think, is quite a significant one. It's it, it, it is the technological investment, like the systems, the hardware, the processes, the CRMs. 
It's also the skill, the human skill investment. And I do wonder, is that maybe a generational thing? Um, you know, we've people my age, I've worked in charities a long time. It's not my native place. So, I, and I also think that then there's also an attitudinal investment. You know, there's a there's a fear, there's a risk. Um, but when you look at what some uh, markets are doing in this space, I mean, some of the stuff that's happening in the US is so exciting about this. So, when we think about chatbots, for example, and the power of a chatbot to create an immediate, personalized, fulfilling response to a donor. We think about virtual reality. I mean, virtual reality has been described as an empathy machine. So, Paul, you know, you're not going to be able to take your donors overseas on mission, on country, to show them the work that you're doing at the moment. But what could a virtual reality experience do? It could give them the same head and heart connection through technology. So those three buckets of investment, the, the infrastructure, the hardware, the software, the human skills, but the attitudinal and risk appetite change, I, I think are probably barriers for us at the moment. Leonie, I think that's a good point to bring you in there and hear your reflections on this in, in an Asian context. Are donors in Asia more willing to fund um, internal capital in, in NGOs and to support NGO capacity or do they just want to pay for programs? Look, you know, it, it, it's variable. So we do get some um, donors who would be quite happy to make monthly donations and it's up to the charity. But there's quite a lot of scrutiny on organisations outside of Australia, across Asia, in terms of where that money gets spent. Um, typically, the rule of thumb um, that I recall was about 20, no more than 25% getting spent on things that were deemed to be overheads, you know, the salaries, the technical infrastructure, the offices, uh, etc. And everything else had to sort of go towards programs. Um, and then within um, specific programs itself, there was still an expectation that there would be a certain amount of overhead because you do actually have to get people to the field and then you have to support those people in the field with equipment, right, food, kind of the basics of survival to, to make sure that the programs really do hit home. It becomes a very important thing, I think, in terms of transparency you know, this is where um, not just the annual reports, which are very important, but, you know, for most NGOs, what I've noticed is that the annual report actually comes out quite a long way after the end of the financial year. So, again, where we're thinking about these constant communications, um, rather than waiting, waiting for something that's kind of a very rigidly structured, like the old monthly newsletters, these kind of as-they-happen updates um, you know, I think Sarah talked about virtual reality, which is great, but it's it's quite an extreme measure in terms of how you would have to produce that. If you think about bringing it back to the fact that everybody in the field has a mobile phone in their hand and how could you actually equip those field workers to just capture little 60-second, you know, 60 seconds, a couple of minutes sound bites that could be really easily edited into something that, then the people who are donating to your charity get that impression of how the work is actually happening. And I think some of these things over time, as the charities are changing in terms of getting more millennials and more people that are, are very digital savvy and can produce these things, upload them quite easily, I think that's where we're going to start getting really regular sort of engagement and communications. So, you know, having somebody that's running some of these channels, looking at YouTube, maybe asking for specific volunteers around some of these things, schools, universities, 
digital marketing programs um, agencies where they've got their CSR programs. We should be trying to tap into those to get more people to help us to actually build out these programs and just try different things. I mean, look at the popularity of things like TikTok. I can't get my daughter off that. It'd be great if it had more charity and giving back messages. <laughs> I think what you've said there is really interesting, um, Leonie, and I think to sort of culminate this conversation, there's one clear um Well, there's a number of clear call to actions for NGOs out of what you've said. And one that really struck me is for any NGOs listening to really reconsider highlighting their low overheads in a marketing strategy and realising that you're probably damaging the perception of your own brand in the long term, as well as damaging the sector and our collective fundraising prospects. Are there other key messages or if there's one key thing you'd like NGOs to know to be fit for the future in regards to fundraising, what would it be? Look, you know, for me, I think if you, if you look at the way that a lot of organisations, we, we talk about, um, you know, in the for-profit sector, we talk about economic impact, et cetera. What really resonates with people, though, I think are stories about the actual human impact of their donation. And I, I, I just love, I mean, I cry watching videos um, which talk about, you know, donations to particular charities or technology innovations around the first time somebody that is deaf has heard, they've actually been able to hear something because of a program to raise some funds. That sort of stuff, A, it makes me feel good. B, it elicits a really emotional response, right? And it reminds For me, it reminds me of the importance of actually giving back because I want that human connection. So I actually think that a lot of it, we we do talk, and we talked earlier about that in terms of platforms and Sarah's talking about has it really changed in terms of donorship and, and volunteerism. We're talking about humans. Humans crave connection. They crave community, whether that is a physical presence, whether it's offline world or whether it's online. So when we think about digital, I do think, We still have to try and engage, not just at a transactional sense in terms of we've given some money, therefore I'm going to give you some information back, but in a community sense in terms of how do we keep that person and really win their love for the NGO and the programs that they've helped to fund. And for me, it's always heartfelt stories. Sarah, what do you think? I agree. And in a way, this has sort of come full circle to the first sort of conversation we had about core principles and then the tools and methodologies and the environment so you know I don't want to oversimplify things but people give because something in their heart and something in their head has been triggered people give to people and the two reasons that people don't give is because they're not asked and they're not thanked so you can put all the tools and and I know it's complex and I know it's difficult and Paul you know you made the point crowded market, diminishing returns, all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, if we don't ask the right people in the right way with the right stimulation and the right motivation, and if we don't thank them and show them how important they are to what we're trying to do, then we've got Buckley's regardless of the widgets and whiz-bang gizmos that we might use. And I think that's the perfect note on which to finish today's podcast. Leonie, Sarah, you've both been fantastic and provided a wealth of insights. On behalf of Rachel and myself, thank you very, very much. I hope you really enjoyed this third episode in the Goodwill Hunters series on the future of the NGO. 
Look out for our next episode in the series, discussing innovation in the NGO sector, with Mark Reading and Kevin Starr. Thank you.